Hello and welcome to the Blue Collar Yields podcast. I am your host, Tom Migliaccio. At Blue Collar Yields, we will talk about real estate, entrepreneurialism, and many other topics. You can find more episodes on Apple Podcasts. And while there, don't forget to rate this show and subscribe. Our guest today is Rich Laletta. Rich graduated from Ryder University and began his career at Wachovia Bank, where he maintained a large client base and offered commercial and residential mortgage, investments, and estate planning. He left Wachovia to launch Philly Apartment Company, which has evolved into the largest residential leasing firm in the greater Philadelphia region. Rich is also an active real estate investor and developer. He owns several apartment buildings and an impressive portfolio of single-family homes throughout Philadelphia and Southern New Jersey. Rich recently co-founded Rentbox, a mobile app that provides apartment community residents with discounts to local businesses. All right, Rich, thanks for being here today. We really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks for having me. I'm excited, Tom. Let's start at the beginning. You're involved in a number of different real estate businesses. When did you first fall in love with real estate? I come from a family with a real estate background. My father was a builder developed a couple small office condominium parks. So when I was younger, I was around that. But I remember being real young and we used to take all the scrap wood from construction and build skateboard ramps with it. Ever since then, I just liked building. I liked creating things. Just always knew I wanted to be involved in real estate one way or another. And then my path just kind of went down that road. So you worked at Wachovia Bank for a few years after college. How did this role prepare you for life as a real estate investor? I took that job at Wachovia Bank, sort of on the advice of one of my favorite books, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, Robert Kiyosaki. That was probably the first self-help book I've ever read out of college. And one of the things he says is work to learn, don't work to earn. Have your money work for you, but your role should be learning what you need to know to be successful. And knowing that I wanted a career in real estate, it was important to me to understand banking and underwriting processes. And I figured I'd be borrowing a lot of money from banks as my career went on. So it was a good idea to start there. So when did you know that it was time to leave Wachovia and become a full-time entrepreneur? I also always knew I wanted to not spend too much time in corporate America. I'm entrepreneurial at heart. I wouldn't say I knew exactly when that time was, but ever since graduating college, my cousin and I She's also very entrepreneurial, and she was my business partner in the first company I started. But she was living up in Hoboken. I used to go up there with a case of beer, and we'd sit there and drink beers and talk about all of our different business ideas. At one point, we almost started a company called Party Like a Rockstar. We had Tina Turner's old tour bus under agreement to purchase, and we were going to buy it and rent it out for bachelor parties and bachelorette parties and ski trips and stuff like that. Sort of last minute, we were like, wait a minute, is this really the best? business to operate or do we just want a rock star tour bus the true answer was number two so we tabled that idea so we always looking into business opportunities and then when i launched my first company it just made sense and i called my boss up and i said hey you around today i need to talk to you he told me he was in his office i went over to his office and as soon as i walked in he looked at me and said you're leaving aren't you he saw the look on my face and knew i was pretty excited about something 
So let's stay with that. Was it nerve wracking when you left Wachovia to start your own thing? It actually wasn't at all. Not that I was lighting the world on fire as far as income as a banker. Somewhat of an entry-level position. I was comfortable financially, but it was just something that I was not worried about leaving and rolling the dice on my own thing. I knew I had a strong support group. If I had to put my towel between my legs and move back in with my parents, you know, I was 22 or 23 at the time, and I was just very willing to take that chance. Do you remember your first rental property that you purchased? My first property was a four-unit building in the art museum area section of Philadelphia. It had a ton of deferred maintenance. It was sort of tenant-occupied when I purchased it, occupied by a landlord that was extremely hands-off, poorly ran the property. The tenants that were in there weren't even sure where they were supposed to pay their rent to because some months he would show up and collect it and some months he wouldn't. So needless to say, when I purchased the property, I quickly had to either get them cooperating with the landlord that was going to run it well or get them out and renovate the unit and get it re-rented. So it was a work in progress that lasted a little while. So how did you fund your first purchase? I actually funded my first purchase traditionally. I definitely have some purchases that I got nice and creative on. My first purchase, I had some money set aside from when I was in college. I made a couple stock trades that worked out well. I was able to put together the money for a down payment. So I put 10% down, borrowed 80% at the time from the bank, and I had the person that I bought the property off hold a 10% second mortgage. So somewhat traditional, but had to get a little creative. So how are you funding your deals now that you're an established real estate investor? I utilize all options, but really my favorite is using private lenders. I have two business partners that do the most of my buy and hold rental properties with, and we either use our own money when we have it, you know, when we're liquid, or, or if not, we have a small list of private lenders that trust us and love what we do, and they're happy to lend us money to acquire our properties because we pay them a nice interest rate. And then once we renovate it, lease it out, stabilize it, we go and refinance it with the bank, pay them back. And they're upset the day we pay them back because they're like, all right, well, make sure you call me as soon as you have another opportunity because I want to get my money deployed. We treat ourselves as private lenders as well. Just kind of internally, it doesn't really make a difference. But the, the way we look at it is like, oh, you know what? I have money sitting off on this next deal for us. And then we'll actually pay ourselves the same interest rate we would pay our private lenders or yeah. vice versa. I happen to be not liquid at the moment. And my business partner is, he funds that one. Years ago, private lending wasn't as prevalent as it is today. So how did you first learn about it? I guess really just from talking about what I was passionate about. Another early on property, not my first, but there was a property at the neighborhood that was very up and coming in Philadelphia at the time. Now it's much more established, but I was talking about it and the trends that I'm seeing that, that led me to believe it's going to be a hot spot. And a business associate that I always looked up to and admired their career, I had mentioned it to them and they offered. They said, that sounds great. You can't pass that up. You got to buy that one. And I said, yeah, you know, 
I'd probably have to settle quick. I'm not sure I even have the time right now to go through the whole bank underwriting process. And he said, don't let that stop you. He said, let me know how much money you need. I'll write you a check. Our listeners might have heard about the Burr strategy, buy, renovate, refinance, repeat. Could you please explain how the strategy works and how you use it to expand your portfolio? In my opinion, or many people's opinion, and the reason the BRRR is such a popular strategy is that it's really not sustainable to use your own money. I mean, there were times when I've done really well on a property. I'm more of a buy and hold, but every now and then, you know, I'll sell something. And there are times where I had a lot of money sitting in the bank, but as a investor or developer, you don't really hold on to money too long because you reinvest it. And when you're putting 25, 30% down payment on properties, no matter how much money you have in the bank, sooner or later it's gone, you know, and then do you sit on the sidelines or do you keep running your business? And that's really where the BRRR comes into place where you are able to leverage other people's money to buy, allow you to get better deals when you buy because you have more negotiating power, be able to settle quick. Investors who are starting out tend to underestimate rehab costs, and they can also overestimate it, which makes it difficult for deals to pencil out. Do you have any tips for investors who would like to tighten up their rehab budget? I would say if you're going to be wrong, be wrong by overestimating it. Because that's a good point where sometimes it might be a good deal that you talk yourself out of being a good deal because you overestimated it. But that's the lesser of a risk as opposed to underestimating it and running out of money halfway through a renovation. My advice, it is one of the more difficult things in our industry. And the best advice is learn from experience. It took me some time to really be as accurate as we are with estimating renovation costs, but with experience to the point where you know exactly how per unit new HVAC is and running ductwork is and what rough plumbing and what rough electric should be. And 10 years ago, I had no idea that the price you should be looking for for hanging and taping a piece of sheetrock was $8 to hang it and $8 to tape and spackle it. But again, just by doing, you really start to hone in on those numbers and it gets easier as time goes on. I would say before you have that experience, rely on people with the experience. If you don't have a mentor or even a friend, family member, coworker, or even just someone in a local investment group that, that does have the experience, that should be the first thing on your list to seek out that person. Start to borrow other people's experiences while you're in the process of making your own. So, how do you determine what the property will rent for after renovation? The easy answer is to look at comparable rents in that area, in that market. But I kind of think it's a little more of an art than a science. And I always like giving my rental properties a little bit of character, you know, as opposed to just being very vanilla box or cookie cutter. We do things like put the outlets with the USB ports where an end table would be in the living room or in the backsplash of the kitchen to make it easy for someone to charge their phone or plug in a Bluetooth speaker. If we have a little area of dead space, we'll do recessed shelving or maybe even some live edge wood countertops. So in my experience, getting a little funky, getting a little creative, you can ask for the higher end of the market as opposed to the middle of the market. And a lot of that I believe, one, I think people like a little bit of character, but two, they remember it. 
So, you know, when a renter goes out and looks at 10 properties at the end of the day, their head's spinning and they're like, wait, which one do we want? And then they say, oh, the one with that uh, reclaimed wood barn door over the hall closet. So refinancing the property is a really important part of the Burr strategy as it allows investors to recycle their equity into the next project. How do you project a post-renovation value for your acquisition analysis? Sort of the same answer as projecting the rents. The historic data that you have available to you is very important. You never want to ignore that. I kind of look at projecting post-renovation value similar to a spreadsheet where you can really manipulate it and convince yourself that it is whatever you want to convince yourself that it is, but that's the wrong thing to do. So take a look at what's out there, active, pending, and sold. Look at those numbers, compare your property to those properties. You'll get a number that may not be exact to the dollar, but close enough where you'll have a successful refinance. And then even all the way up until the closing of that refinance, there are things that you can do to help. You know, obviously I respect appraisers, the work that they do, and we work with very honest appraisers. But one of the things I always do, because they might not be extremely familiar with the macro geographic location of that property, I'll show up with the comps that do make the most sense for that property. When I let them in and say, hey, you know, I'm not sure how familiar you are with the area. I came across some properties that are very relevant comps to the subject property. I figured I'd print them out for you in case you needed them. A lot of times they're very appreciative. They still do their own research. They like the fact that a little legwork. Now, Rich, when you do the little legwork that you just described, you're handing over to the appraiser properties that have actually traded, right? Not properties that are for sale? Correct. So now let's go back to your Wachovia days. How does the bank look at these deals when they're underwriting a new permanent loan? It depends on the asset class and the type of property. Usually the smaller properties they look at based on value, whereas the bigger properties they looked at based on the income approach. I have, my portfolio is mixed between single family, multifamily, mixed use. But when we refinance a single family home, there's no way I would go through that underwriting process each time we have a single family home to refinance. So what we'll do is we'll put together a portfolio of 10 properties and then go to the bank and do one refinance for that blanket loan that's going to cover that whole portfolio. And then they look at it, both the income approach and the value approach, which usually ends up helping us. That was my next question. Eventually, investors get to the point where the banks just won't lend them any more money for rentals. And then you have to go through a portfolio lender. And how can investors work with them? Correct. Actually, I do have a couple mortgages in my own name, but they were more, I would say, even by accident. My primary residence, there's a property me and a buddy lived in together out of college that we still own as a rental, and we just happen to have it in our own names. But for the most part, my strategy was always borrowing commercial funds for that reason. I didn't want to get to the point where I had so much showing up on my own personal credit. Like you had said, there's, there's only so many mortgages you can have in your own name before the bank frowns upon it. And then even not counting the mortgages, you know, you have things like debt to income ratio and these expenses showing up on your personal credit, which could also be a hindrance. So in my opinion, I think it's worth paying 
an extra quarter point or half a point to have the commercial loan as opposed to the personal loan. So we're looking at a three-bedroom, two-bathroom house that pops up for sale in Gloucester City. It's priced at 50K, and its annual taxes are 2500 How do you size up a deal like this? How do you budget your operational expenses like marketing, routine maintenance, and also your administrative expenses? We still do a good old-fashioned pro forma, pencil to paper, and have our best estimate of all the numbers. Tricky thing is, you know, nowadays, cost of materials are high, cost of labor is high. I've literally seen some properties where if the seller just gave me the property for free, I couldn't make the numbers work based on the amount of construction it would have needed. On the other hand, you look at many properties, you analyze many properties, but you don't have to buy every property. You pick and choose the winners. And at the end of the day, it has to make money. You had mentioned Gloucester City. One of the reasons we like it there, in addition to just thinking the, the neighborhood has a ton of potential, just a small historic neighborhood, riverfront, rents are very fair, taxes are fairly low. And when we first started buying here about three years ago, you could buy properties a lot lower. We're actually seeing prices on the MLS have close to doubled since then. No, it's great. Just have to be a little more creative, work a little harder and turn over a couple more stones to find the good deals now, whereas before they were a little easier to just kind of pick off one by one. So Rich, are you buying in every cycle of the market? Or is there ever a time where you're like, you know what, I'm just going to take a couple months off, see where the market shakes out and go in? Or are you constantly putting the pencil to the paper and trying to make it work? I'm always buying. I buy and hold. Very rarely do we flip a property, maybe one or two a year, just because those numbers happen to work better than a buy and hold for that particular property. But I believe regardless of what the market's doing, you have to know your numbers. You have to refuse to overpay. Don't let emotion get involved. Don't think you ever have to buy one particular property. But if you're buying right and paying the right prices and buying the right properties and you're in it for the buy and hold, the market cycles shouldn't dictate whether or not you're buying. Actually, funny enough, probably a little over a year ago, my business partner and I said that. We're like, whoa, these, can you believe these prices? They're getting insane. Let's just sit on the sidelines for a little bit and see what happens. And within a week of saying that, like four amazing deals fell on our lap and we had more construction going on than we did in a long time just because it was the right deal. It didn't matter what part of the cycle you're in. Yeah, I heard stories where people sit on the sideline and they try to wait for the bottom of the market. But more times than not, Rich, how many times have you heard this? People have just misjudged the market like crazy. And then they miss that huge upswing and they're nowhere near the bottom. And they're way worse than if they just kept buying the whole time. Absolutely. It's impossible to time the market. In the stock market, they call it dollar cost averaging. If values are going up and down, you're going to try to pinpoint when they're at the lowest and buy and when they're at the highest and sell. That would be amazing, but that's nearly impossible. But if you're constantly buying, you're basically averaging out the values to mitigate risk. And again, if you're buying at the right price, you're minimizing the amount of risk you're taking. So let's move on with that. What hidden values do you see when investing in properties that a rookie or a novice investor other may overlook? The most common one that I come across and uncover substantial value is having a better idea of what it can rent for than the previous owner knew of. 
just understanding the market that I'm investing in and knowing what are the fringe areas and the up and coming hotspots where renters are flocking to that area, but the values are kind of lagging behind, kind of gives you a jump and the ability to start to acquire in that area for the lower price while taking advantage of the higher rent. I definitely use that to my advantage a lot in my career. Other than that, just adaptive reuse, taking a building that there's a future use that we can turn it into that is more valuable or generates more income than previous use. So where do you get the majority of your deal flow? Is it MLS, wholesalers, postcards? I've never done any of that. Just random. It's hard to say any one way. I find source the most of my deals, but the biggest thing is just having everyone that I deal with know what I do. And then when a deal pops up, they think of me. I got a great deal on an eight unit building in Philly that we probably bought for 40 cents on the dollar. It was from a demo guy that cleans out some properties when we buy them. It was someone that he knew that was retiring. As soon as he said he would consider selling, the demo guy immediately thought of me. Put the two of us together. We struck a deal right away and paid him a nice referral fee and everyone was happy. Property management is tough work. How are you able to scale up the property management of your single family portfolio? I have a little trouble letting go of control on. We self-manage our properties. In the beginning, it was doable, but a challenge. Now, even with the portfolio growing more significantly in the last three to five years, we use an amazing property management software called Appfolio. It handles the online rent collection, online maintenance requests, automatic charge of late fees, sending out vendors if it's a plumbing issue or electrical issue. It streamlines things. It's still something that one day I know I want to outsource property management, but in the meantime, I've kind of just been going forward with blinders on of focus on growing the portfolio to the next level until I really need to outsource in order to continue to scale. Are there any horror stories that you experienced as you learned the property management business? My biggest horror story was how difficult it was to deal with the city of Philadelphia's water department over some crazy issue that I had one time. It was actually the first building that I ever bought I'd mentioned earlier. One day I get a bill in the mail saying, oh, we were estimating water usage. And from 1982 to the present, you owe $18,000. I bought the building in 2003. So it's like, wait a minute, that's not even my water usage. They were not very easy to deal with there. It was a couple of years of back and forth and getting the title company involved and some other things. That was the only real horror story that I have other than little things that used to really make me shake my head, even though now nothing surprises me. I had a tenant one time. She called me screaming. She said, I'm in the shower and the lights flickering on and off. This is an electrical issue and there's water. I'm going to get electrocuted and die. You better get here right away. She was flipping out. And this was when I was still at the bank, actually. So I had a boss to answer to. But I said, listen, I have an emergency. I got to go. I went over there and her light bulb was a little loose. And I tightened the light bulb back up. Everything worked just fine. And I politely said, please don't call me again unless you really have to. So 
you <laughs> mentioned Gloucester City and Philadelphia. What markets are you currently invested in? We're in a bunch of different neighborhoods in Philadelphia. I definitely like Gloucester City. It's a fun market to be investing in because while we're doing it, because of the value we see, we also see what we're doing also change the market because just little by little, when a home goes from dilapidated to beautifully renovated, that whole block changes and shines. And we're seeing so much of that, not only us doing it. I feel like three years ago, there weren't too many other people doing it, but now you see a dumpster on every other block because it's uh, older housing stock in Gloucester. So right. now you're seeing a lot more homes being completely gut renovated into beautiful finer homes. Gloucester, and recently we started investing in Atlantic City. And what excites you about Atlantic City? Population growth, job growth, Stockton, South Jersey Gas, a couple other companies that are relocating their corporate office to the area, the employees of the casinos, and then just the fact that there's only so much shore property. We mentioned single family and multifamily. Are you investing in any other asset classes? Excuse in our portfolio and retail is a little bit of a challenge now. There are companies out there, whether retail or product oriented, that just can't compete with ordering on Amazon.com and it shows up on your doorstep the very next morning. So because of that, we had some spaces that were testing uh, co-working space in right now. We just fitted out this very cool, funky office space with some amenities. We did it first on a retail space, and we own an old school that we're considering developing into a co-working establishment as well. So what are you doing to make your shared workspaces unique? Like you'd mentioned, the things you do on the multifamily and the apartment side, what would you say sets you apart on shared workspaces? I think that's going to be more of like the grassroots community we're looking to build. As far as amenities, we plan on having them, and I can list a couple, but WeWork has every amenity out there. So we're not necessarily going to beat WeWork with the amenities, but we can match the important amenities, Beermeister, obviously, and then offer an environment or a community that is just beneficial to all. The tagline is going to be co-working with an emphasis on networking. So in addition to the working space and the amenities, we're going to make it real easy for community members to refer business back and forth to each other, make sure to include networking events as a part of our calendar, and just hope everyone thrives. What interested you or what first caught your eye about shared workspaces? The most interesting thing is no commitment. If you're starting a business, I don't even know the most recent statistic, but what do they say? 80% of all small businesses fail. If you're one of that 80% and you just signed a five-year lease or a 10-year lease somewhere, you're in a pretty unfortunate situation. Whereas these co-working facilities, I see some that are month-to-month right off the bat. I see some that are a one-year lease. Our thoughts on that where we want at least a six-month commitment up front. Otherwise, it's not even worth putting your desk together and putting your paperwork together to get you started. Then after that first six-month period, you're month-to-month and We hope you really enjoy it and want to stay forever. But if you choose to leave for another location or if business might not what you were expecting and you have to leave, we don't want to hold you up. We want to make sure that you have that flexibility. 
So let's pivot. Can you tell us about the Philadelphia Apartment Company? So the Philly Apartment Company was the company that my cousin and I started. When we decided not to buy Tina Turner's bus, we landed on starting the Philly Apartment Company. It's a free service to renters searching for apartments. And we worked with almost all the landlords of Philadelphia kind of being a matchmaker. And when we secure a renter in their property, the landlord paid us for generating that lease for them. So to all the potential renters listening out there, do you charge them to use the service? Nope. Absolutely free service for the renter. That hasn't changed since inception. We started the company in 2004. I had actually sold the company two and a half years ago to a friend of mine in the real estate industry. I stayed on as a director. I'm still very active and involved in the company. And it still ran the same way it did when we started with the exception of some big synergies now that it's owned by a larger company. So when you founded this, like you said, it was 2004. The internet was still relatively new. Was there any competition for this? No, there was no Zillow. There was no Trulia, no Realtor.com. Actually, Realtor.com might have been around back then. Realtor.com was around back then, but it wasn't really widely used. Our competition was the Philadelphia Weekly, the free newspapers that are in the little metal boxes on the corners. Philadelphia Weekly and City Paper, the back of both of those had rental listings in them. And Craigslist, but we actually utilized Craigslist and we would advertise our listings on there and generate a lot of leads and rent a lot of apartments that way. You just mentioned the synergies. Is that the only major change since its inception? Over time, as things like Trulia and Zillow did come out, we had to fine tune our advertising a little bit to make sure that we were still capturing enough of the market share, which you know we were able to. The other big difference is when we started the company, no one even wanted to spend time on rentals. I remember telling a couple people that I valued their opinion that we were looking to launch this company and they were like, what? You can't make money with rentals? But you know, it was really more of the system that we built and the ability to, to streamline the process. And it was a scalable numbers game and we always did really well with it. But then as the years went on, there were some dips in the market. You had realtors out there that are realizing they're not going to sell as many homes. So they started shifting their business models to incorporate rentals into their sales plan. We eventually weren't the only people in the game, but at that point we had enough traction where we were able to stay on top. Has technology changed how you collect rents? Absolutely. We collect all but one of our tenants' rents online right now for our portfolio. I have one tenant that actually lived in the property package that I purchased of five properties, and one of them had an existing tenant in there. Until this day, he still pays rent cash every month, but he's literally our only tenant that doesn't pay rent online nowadays. That's just my portfolio as far as the amount of leasing we do for landlords throughout the greater Philadelphia area through the Philly Apartment Company. It's very few and far between when someone doesn't offer an online option and you need it in order to stay competitive as a landlord. Can you tell us a little about rent bucks? Rentbox is alive and well, but the widespread launch is postponed because it weighs heavily on technology. And in the 23rd hour, we came up with a way to significantly improve it further, but it involves building out a pretty 
complex technology that we're working on and it's going to take a little time. Basically, Rentbox is an amenity that apartment buildings can offer their residents. It gives renters discounts at all the local businesses in the area, and renters can search by map, by list, or it uses geofencing technology where they walk around the neighborhood. It'll say, ding, you get a free beer in that bar, or you get 20% off shoes in that shoe store. It also reports back to the apartment community so they know that the residents are using it and they know they're saving money. Hopefully that allows it to be a lease retention tool as well. They can say, hey, your, your lease is set to expire in 60 days. Hopefully you want to renew. I see you're taking great advantage of our resident VIP program, Rentbox, and you saved $350 last year. So we had built it out, fully functional. We did like a soft launch. I had met with five apartment buildings and all five signed up for it. The apartment buildings have to pay for the software or the product. And then we decided to take the step back and build it out one step further and then hopefully launch it first in Philadelphia, New York, and D.C., and then hopefully nationwide. Can you tell us a little bit more about the process of developing an app? It's something I've had an interest in, and Rentbox wasn't the first idea that I researched developing. One, it's not cheap to do it good and do it right. I got very lucky meeting a team that I partnered with on Rentbox. So our iOS engineer is in-house and he's a genius. So what he did as a partner probably would have cost about $150,000. And then through my research, to be honest, I don't think I would do it without the iOS engineer in-house. It's the cost. Hopefully they're going to adhere to your timeline. And then even once it's up and running and launched, there's ongoing maintenance and management and upgrade. I want to be in bed with that person to know that they're going to care as much about the product as I do. I just kind of figured the only way to really ensure that was to partner with them. Rich, seriously, thank you for your time. We really appreciate it. How can our listeners get in touch with you? If anyone wants to email me, you can email me at richlawletta at gmail.com. R-I-C-H, Lawletta, L-A-U-L-E-T-T-A at gmail.com. Perfect. Thanks, Rich. I'll talk to you soon. All right. Thanks, Tom. Thanks for tuning into this week's episode. We hope you enjoyed it. If there are more topics you would like to hear about, you can email us at info at bluecollaryields.com. For more episodes, you can search Blue Collar Yields on Apple Podcasts.